With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, I've been boxing for 23 years uh, total time. And, you know, obviously this sport, you know, as you, as you guys have heard in many, you know, contact sports, it takes a toll on you. And just the accumulative effect of, of all the training and all the fights, um, it, it just starts to wear on you. And when your, your physical body starts to wear on you, then it starts to take your desire. And when you don't have the desire and you don't have the ability physically to go out there and prepare the way you need to, you, you just shouldn't be in a boxing ring. So um, my goal has always been to walk away from this sport and, and to retire from the sport and to not let the sport retire me. And I, and I have that opportunity today. People see, you know, what I do fight night, they see under the lights, but they don't see the toil, they don't see the grind, they don't see, you know, just just the pain, the physical pain that you go through, again, not just in the fight, but to prepare and to get ready for those battles. And I, I'm the type of fighter where everything has to be clicking, everything has to be on point. And, and I've felt the physicality of the sport, and, and even, again, not just in the ring stuff, but the training and the preparation start to take its toll on me for the last two or three years and I bit down and continued to push through and you know at this point it's time and I know it's time and, I, and I've studied retirements those same guys that you just mentioned I've studied those guys and how they walked away and who came back and all these different things and I've talked to a lot of guys and they've always told me you're just going to know when it's time and nobody else will know but you and I feel like that time is now. All right, we are back. All my fight heads out there, fight heads live is in effect tonight, today, Monday. What is it? Uh, September twenty fifth, I believe it is. <laughs> I'm losing track of the days here, um, but yeah, we are in effect. Myself, Ramon, RL, Malpica, and I got Sean Heinberger, the the wealth of boxing knowledge on the line. How's everything going, Sean? Doing pretty good, bud. How you doing tonight? Not bad at all. Not bad at all. We just uh, heard from. Andre Ward kind of giving uh, his reason reasoning for retire, retiring. That is courtesy of First Take on ESPN. Um, and we're gonna get to we're gonna talk some Andre Ward today. As um, you know, he he hangs up the gloves. Uh, kind of a I, I won't necessarily say a controversial retirement, but um, there are some questions, things we need to talk about there. Uh, we're also gonna you know the the replay of Canelo Triple G was la- uh, this past Saturday. Uh, preceding the 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 Linares Campbell fight, so we'll kind of put our finishing touches on what we saw there and any new news regarding the rematch. Uh, but we do have a special guest today in our second hour, which I know all of you guys are going to be excited for, and that's going to be Steve Kim. He's going to be calling in for a segment. Um, Steve Kim from UCN, uh, you know, uh, been been in the fight game for a long time. Uh, I know a lot of you guys are fans of his as well, so really excited about having him on the air. He's currently doing his show the next round right now, so once he's done with that show, he's going to call into ours and, you know, bless bless the listeners with some of his fight game 
knowledge. Um, so we're going to get through all that, talk about the fights this past weekend, hopefully maybe get into these divisional rankings that, that sh- uh, Sean put together, you know, from, from, from his rankings, my rankings and Vincent Samano's and um, long story short, we have a pretty jam packed show. So let's get the particulars out the way you can follow me on Twitter at RL Malpica, Sean, uh, get up, give him your Twitter handle and, and your website as well. Uh, Twitter at Thoughts of RS and uh, the blog, uh, my web address is thoughtsofrs.blogspot.com. Ramon remembers it and does it far more gracefully than I. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And you have any, if you have any thoughts on anything uh, boxing related or sports related or life related, you know, today's going to be a very open forum show. Um, and, and that's how I kind of want to keep it going forward, um, just to not close the doors on anything. Obviously, we are a boxing show. But at the same time, we are a platform, so um, feel free to call us regarding anything. I know we got one question from from a fan out there that we're going to get to in a little bit. But if any of you, any of you others uh, have any takes, questions, anything like that, here are the numbers to the show. You can call into the show anytime at 646-787-1746. And I wanted to start the show today um, – you know, to utilize this platform real quick and just talk about what's going on in uh, in the sports world today. You know, uh, we don't really talk politics on the show. We really don't talk, you know, news items on this show. But when it integrates itself into the sporting realm, you know, I know I have opinions on it, and I know for sure that Sean has opinions on it, and maybe you have opinions on it. But um, and that's the whole situation with the um, NFL players protesting. Um, kneeling uh, in kneeling or uh, in the Pittsburgh Steelers stand, staying in the locker room during the national anthem. Um, It's a very touchy subject, obviously, for for good reason. Um, So I just thought me and Sean could take a quick minute to kind of shed our thoughts on it. Um, I kind of decided to do this. Sean agreed to go along with it. So don't hold him, his foot to the fire on this one. It's all me. Um, but, um, as far as my thought, I'm gonna give my thoughts real quick. I'm gonna let Sean respond and then we're, we're going to move on. But, um, like I said, we have a platform and we're going to utilize it. Um, you know, my, my, my whole outlook on the whole thing is I feel like what happened in week three of the NFL was almost protesting for the sake of protesting. Now, now listen, just hear me real quick. And what I mean by that is, like, would there have been a protest if Colin Kaepernick was on an NFL team this past week, this past weekend? You know, um, I almost feel like they weren't protesting social injustice. They were protesting the president. And, and in my opinion, by doing that, all they're doing is adding energy to, a, to the situation and adding power to his stance. Now, look, we have a president that – likes to speak his mind, he likes to tweet, and he's not very presidential. Let's just keep it all let, – let's just throw it out there. And by responding to him in that manner, I just think it kind of clouds the, the, the true reasoning for the protest in the first place. I mean, like I said, were they protesting because of social injustice, or, they were, or were they literally just defying the president of the United States? And I, and I – tend to lean towards they were defying the president, which to me only gives power to the president. It's like similar to like a, like a parent-child relationship. 
You know what I'm saying? Mom, dad tells you not to do something, and you're going to rebel, and you're going to do it. Why? In defiance of them, just because. And that's what I felt happened in week three. If you look at the stats, I think over 200 NFL players knelt um, for, the, for the national anthem, as opposed to, I think, six in week two. Um, so did something change? Did social injustice change over the week? Or let's call it what it is. They were kneeling in defiance of the president, not because they were kneeling for social injustice. That's my opinion. That's how I feel about it. Um, and look, and that's my thing. I just want to – if social inequality and injustice was the purpose of the protest, then why did they decide to do it now? And it's just – look, it's, it's obvious because the president comes out and says something. Now they're going to go ahead and do it. And the, the protest, to me, doesn't shed light on injustice. It, justice, it only sheds light on the defiance. Um, this protest is about Trump and nothing else. So let's call it what it is. Athletes, actors, anybody I say who has a high social platform, uh, they're doing his work. Like they talk about dividing the nation. I feel like Trump is like throwing softballs and they're knocking him out the park. They're giving more power to the situation. What are people talking about today? Are they talking about social injustice or what they're protesting about? No, they're talking about the fact that they're, they protested because of what Trump tweeted. And I think that in itself just really dilutes what Colin Kaepernick, it, whatever, whatever side you fall on, I just feel like it dilutes his whole purpose in the first place. And that's kind of where I'm at with it. You know what I'm saying? You give power to things you don't mean to sometimes, just like cuss words. I mean, what makes a cuss word a cuss word? It's the power we give to it. You know, there's no difference between the word the or the word shit. But the power we give to the word shit makes it what? It makes it a cuss word. So, and I think that in this situation, it's very similar. Um, you know, you're giving power to Donald Trump indirectly by defying what he's saying to do. That's my two cents, and I'll, let, I'll leave the floor to Sean. Uh, wow, that, that's a lot there, and very well said. First of all, let me, let me preface this with there's not a lot Donald Trump can do that I'm really ever going to approve of because it's hard for me to give pre- credit to someone that you are prenaturally disposed to not caring for. I mean, I, I, I've, I've said on this show, I, I've disliked Donald Trump for thir- more than 30 years. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I'm, pre, I'm predisposed to disliking whatever he does to begin with. I think he's unpresidential. I think he's uh, out of control. But all of that said, so far, he hasn't really had the opportunity to ruin anything uh, like he ruined my beloved USFL. But he, <laughs> I, I just I find the arguing with professional athletes and actresses and actors to be just uh, – what was the yeah, – I, I ain't got time for that. Remember the lady that said that and made that a catchphrase for a couple months? Uh, <laughs> here's where I, where I do, however, cross the line. For me personally, I would stand for the anthem, okay? I don't begrudge anybody that doesn't. I do think that the players yesterday uh, or or coaches or whoever was involved, I think it was three teams. I know Pittsburgh was one of them. I think it was Seattle and the other team might have been Tennessee. I think, I think it was Tennessee because Seattle and Tennessee were playing each other. I, I thought in those particular cases, 
perhaps, and I know Pittsburgh's the case because I saw Mike Tomlin's uh, pregame interview, where they were, it seemed to be they put winning the football game ahead of whatever it was that they did, which is fine. That's what it should be. That's their job. My problem with it is I think way too many people are giving it way too much attention. And the reason I'm saying that is as follows. How many times have you watched a game, a regular season game, not a playoff game or or anything like that, a regular season game that they showed the national anthem? They just usually don't. And now, because of Mr. Trump having to open his mouth, it it was televised on every network. Every game. They what he did was, I think if from from his standpoint, it was a political move to divert attention from his various misdeeds or miscalculations, depending on the situation that that you have. What, what I would like to bring a, a little spin on it is, I, I watched CNN this morning and Bob Costas, who I think is just downright brilliant on several topics. He's just one of the smartest guys that you watch on television. The the fact that this guy doesn't have a show of his own, like his old show later, back in the late 80s, early 90s, is has to be only because he doesn't want to do it, because he's brilliant on so many different topics. And the the lady that was talking to him discussed about Colin Kaepernick, who, which is something I'm on the, I'm on the opposite side of, and she said, well, what do you think Colin Kaepernick would think since he's the voice of the movement? And Bob Costas laughed and said, I don't think we want Colin Kaepernick to be the voice of the movement. So this is a guy who is well-intentioned but ill-informed. And, I, and she asked, why is that? And, and the response was, well, this is a guy who has tweeted in the past that he doesn't vote because he doesn't believe that voting helps any situation or helps his people. And Bob Costas's retort was, well, that attitude is what got you Donald Trump. You didn't vote. <laughs> right. And since you didn't vote and you encouraged people not to vote, this is what you get. Your candidate doesn't win. And, and to me, in, in a synopsis, just so we can get to boxing, I don't begrudge the guys for doing what they did yesterday. They have the right to do it, and I'm not going to complain about it. Would I have done it? Probably not. At the same time, it was brought along by somebody that is an attention an attention seeker on a good day and egomaniac on a bad one and i think if you really are bothered by this and i understand a lot of, i've gotten two phone calls from friends of mine great friends of mine probably ranking right up there with fred as my best friends in the world and one of them says i'm boycotting the nfl forever and the other one says I hated the Pittsburgh Steelers before, and now Mike Tomlin is my least favorite person in all of football because they took it that seriously. I just think that if it bothers you, don't pay attention to it because – but our president should have listened to those laws because if he wouldn't have paid attention to it, we wouldn't be talking about it, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But if you're part of the stick-to-sports crowd like I've always been kind of – I think we're fighting a losing battle because I think those days are long gone. You know, it's like um, it's like LeBron James. LeBron James knows 
he could send out a cryptic tweet or a tweet about something, and the whole media world is going to jump all over it. I mean, the dude was doing a tour of a school in California, and everybody jumped on it and just, oh, you know, he's going to the Lakers next year. You know what I'm saying? Like, they, they add so much validity and so much power. And look, a lot of that is orchestrated by LeBron, but it's the same thing with Trump. He knows Absolutely. what his tweets are going to do. He knows the powder keg um, that he can create just by saying something, and he does it. He's a, look, say what you want about the man. He's a very smart man. You know, he's, he's dumb on certain things, things, but as far as strategically, he's a very smart individual. So he knows the effect that his words will have, and, and that's what he did here. I, I would hesitate to say that he's smart, but he's certainly media savvy. <laughs> there, I, I, there, you can you can be knowledgeable in certain areas and still be less than brilliant. And I would say <laughs> the one thing that he knows how to do is play the media like a violin. Right. Uh, every time that something comes out that could severely damage him, he'll rant about something that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> <laughs> and like fish to a worm, boy, they they can't help themselves. And as far as that goes, he's downright brilliant. I mean, he has a knack for figuring out how to distract people. Yeah. So let's 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 close the book on that. Move on. Um, I just wanted to to utilize you know a moment of our time to kind of give our thoughts on that. So let's move forward. Let's that's that's the beauty of boxing. We really don't have to deal with this. I mean, we got to deal with bad decisions. You know, we got to deal with, you know, fighters retiring, fighters not fighting the right guys, you know, out, you know, certain promoters not giving their guys quality matchups. But rarely do politics really involve them. I mean, there's politics within boxing, but as far as the political landscape of America infiltrating into the boxing world, we really don't have to deal with too much. So let's let's um, let's let's float away into the illusion we call the sweet side. Well, that's the thing, Ramon, is, and, and that's the one thing I can kind of – I'm a little sympathetic to the stick-to-sports crowd, and I would consider myself one of them to an extent, is sports is what we use – some of us, not all of us, but it's a what we use to get away from the real world. And I've told, I might have told this story on the air, and I'll, I'll be brief, I promise, because it's sure. somewhat related to that. Um you guys know that part of what I do in the summertime is I go to minor league baseball games and I get autographs and stuff like that, building my collection. And um, I was talking to Jerry Brown, who was a first base coach for the Suns. This is probably about 10 years ago. And he, Jerry Brown was a uh, borderline. He was a utility man in the big leagues for years. He played for the Indians in uh, Texas, and, and he had been around. And one night he's signing a card or two for me, and he says, what the hell do you guys do with all this stuff? He says, what is this? He said, I don't understand it. And I said, well, Jerry, I said, let me ask you, what do you do for fun when the baseball season? Ah, I don't remember what it was. I hunt or fish. That's a pretty generic answer, but a lot of them do. <laughs> and he, he, I said, okay, so, and why do you do that? Ah, you know, to relax, you know, get away from it all, and, you know, so get away from the job, et cetera. I said, uh-huh. I said, why do you think we're here? This is what we do to relax from our daily Joe jobs for a couple of hours to an hour or whatever and go relax and have fun and, and not think about it. It, it, it like struck you like, really? Ah, I get it. Well, I, well, that's what sports are for most of us. It's a distraction from the real world. And I, do I wish politics had not invaded that space? Yes. 
do I think that I? But I rapidly think we're getting to the point of no return now, where where when you start having fans talking about boycotting certain games and certain teams and certain athletes, we've crossed we've crossed that zone, and oftentimes it's very difficult to come back from that. But let's talk boxing now. Gosh, I'm. You, you get me all fired up for Donald Trump, and you're going to get me talking about the New Jersey Generals, and you know. <laughs> oh, no, I hear you, man. I hear you. But um, yeah, let's let's get in, let's get into some boxing, man, because there's a lot of things to talk about. You heard the open with Andre Ward um, deciding yeah, to retire. That, oh yeah, of course, I love man. I love that voice. Uh, can't wait to hear more of it on HBO. For sure. I, let's let's start off though by giving our f- final thoughts on on what was the biggest fight in boxing, controversial decision draw between Canelo Alvarez and Gennady Triple G Golovkin. The replay was just showed this past weekend on on HBO, and the consensus I got was a couple people scored it maybe one round closer um, to Canelo. Some didn't, uh, but at the end of the day, the majority, and when I say majority, I'm talking 90 to 95 percent of people had Golovkin winning that fight. Um, that being said, what I'm seeing a lot of is a lot of narrative going against Golovkin's current skill level, and and basically the narrative is that Golovkin is, and this this is coming from reputable boxing people. You know, Steve Kim said something about it, and, you know, we can ask him about that later today. Um, And not to mention Jim Lampley, who obviously is a huge proponent of Gennady Golovkin, spoke so high of him for many years, is basically saying we're seeing the deterioration before our eyes. I combat that with saying it's easy to say that, but this he was fighting a different level of fighter. Like this is the best competition he's ever had in his career. I mean, where is is it somewhere in the middle, or are are most uh, boxing prognosticators really just overreacting? What do you, I mean? What's what's your take on that, Sean? You know, I kind of agree with I, I look every fight. Watching boxing is like living a life. In a nutshell. You're born to die, and every day your skills build to a peak, and then every day after that, you deteriorate. As a human being, you peak at like 30, 32, and then everything is a gradual decline. Well, that's boxing. And all of a sudden, you got a guy who, who, to be fair, may have wasted his peak years fighting not top competition because they wouldn't get in the ring with him. Of course you're going to see a decline. Name me a fighter that you don't. We saw it recently with uh, Roman Gonzalez. Of course you're going to see a decline. And he's fighting the best guys he's ever fought. Here's, but where, they, I, where I do think they have some legitimacy is he does not work the body like he did against those lesser fighters. And his, he seems to be a little – those combinations used to flow. He seems so much faster and he was looking so, he looked so devastating that when when people when you fight better fighters and they stand up to you of course you're going to look like you're losing a little bit you're fighting pretty yeah imagine if uh you took the Dallas Cowboys tonight and instead of playing the Arizona Cardinals on Monday night football for the next month they're going to play Mount Union Toledo Ashland University and Ohio U. Well, they're going to look like destroyers playing those teams. 
And then the first, and then right after that, they're going to step right up and they're going to play the New England Patriots. Are, well, to the to certain eyes, particularly if you are looking for, they say, "Boy, what's wrong with the Cowboys? They don't seem like the same team." Well, they're not. They're a little beat up, maybe a guy or two's injured, a little nicked up, or whatever, and they're f- playing the best team that they've played. It happens. I don't think, of course, Golovkin's a fighter in decline. He's 35 years old. Is the decline? But let's let's keep in mind about the decline. He is. He just dominated one of the top five or six fighters in the world. He won uh, on my card eight rounds against one of the top five or six fighters in the world. That decline's not too bad. And, and and it's not that I have an issue with saying that he's declining, but when you use words like deteriorating, that's a little different than declining because I'll be honest. Look, I mean, look, I've been watching Golovkin since I want to say the – man, I want to say what's the first fight I watched Golovkin? Which came first? Was, was it Rosado? Uh, I'm not sure. No, no, no. It was the uh... – the guy before that, it was the fight that was supposed to be against Pirog, and Pirog fell out. And that was the I can't remember, pronounce that. And it's, yeah, that guy never showed up again. He, gotcha. remember, I'm going to look it up now. Okay, uh, um, but that guy never. We never heard from that guy again after that. No, yeah, that well, was the fight. Sure. Yeah, that was the fight that was supposed to be Pirog. Okay, so it was that 2012, I believe, something like that, right? Yes. Okay. Okay. So, yes. Okay. So, and I've watched every fight since. And and Golovkin has been the same kind of fighter in each one of these fights. I mean, he adjusted a little bit against Lemieux, um, obviously, to compensate for Lemieux's power. And he obviously adjusted a little bit for Dan- Daniel Jacobs, and he adjusted again for Canelo. But in all those fights, he was the same stalking guy. And I did not – and look, I didn't see a different – Gennady Golovkin here. Did he miss a lot of punches? Yeah, but he was fighting a fighter who's pretty damn good and has, and I, want, I don't want to say he's perfected, but he's close to perfecting, you know, defending on the ropes. Like, that's what he does. And not to mention is a counterpuncher. So when I see Triple G stalk his opponent like he did from rounds four through 12, basically, uh, he was a little, you know, he, he kind of eased in the first three rounds, but four through 12, that was the same Golovkin that I've been seeing for years. Now, yeah, he may be declined. Speed is always going to, is always going to be the first thing to go. And maybe he's losing a fraction of a, of a, of a, of a second here or there, you know what I'm saying? But he was never a guy built on speed anyway. So to me, I don't think the fact that he didn't sustain a body attack has to do with deterioration of skills. I think it has to do with what's coming back at him. And and it, if you look at his opponents, I mean, how, how could you not make that case? I mean, what other guy that he was fighting did he not just overpower and dominate? You know, uh, I'd go back to the Lemieux fight where, look, that was the first time he actually literally focuses his, his entire game plan on the jab, right? And he did that for a reason, because of the opposition he was fighting. And I think when you look at what he did in the ring against Canelo, you got to give Canelo more credit and you got to take it for what it is, fighting a, a, a world-class fighter, a world-class fighter, you know, on the biggest stage he's ever been on. And like you said, he won eight rounds. He, he won eight rounds, you know, at the least you could say seven, in my opinion. So 
Declining, fine, I can live with that. But deteriorating is it's a little strong for my for my liking. Uh the fighter we were looking for was Gregor Prosca. Okay, yep. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, that was because gotcha. that was the fight that was supposed to be Pirog. Uh was going to unify titles. And ironically, that is the one title that Golovkin doesn't have, but that was the one he could have had really early on. Uh I think the one thing that we have to that the other the other uh, cup I'd bring to the table about Golovkin in the deterioration is is this is a guy that always thrived on fighting three and four and five times a year and now all of a sudden he's fighting twice throughout through no fault of his own because he's dealing with uh, negotiators and people that don't want to see him fight like well I've already uh, Oscar has said that. You know, we want to have it in May, and we're not really thrilled about we're, we're not really thrilled about uh, him fighting in December because he could get hurt, he could get beat, he could get cut. Well, that is the whole thing. And, and I've always thought that the easy it, it's hey, look, I'm an older guy now. Uh, when you get older and you quit doing what you're doing on a regular basis. It is always harder for you to get back what you have. And he's a guy that has thrived on fighting a lot, and all of a sudden, he's not. And it takes some time to get the, you know, get everything rolling, get everything creaking, get everything doing the way it should, everything moving, throwing punches. And it, it, you, he's a guy that has always thrived on inactivity or, or, or activity, and now he's not. And I, I think that. That's a factor that these guys that I'm not sure if they're picking up on it. I to me, I think he if I'm they need to get him fighting more. I, I get the financial aspect of it, but he would be so much more effective if he got in the ring four times a year. Oh, uh, I agree. but but I'm a guy that says that about all of them, but especially in his case because he spent his career doing that. For sure, for sure. No, I agree with that, and that's that's a great point actually. Because the best part, the best times of his career, um, the most impressive performances were when he was fighting three to four times a year. Um, you know, and 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 I think for him as he continues to go on, I'd, I'd continue that regimen. But um, you, um, I know you had a question from from one of our fans, Sean. So I wanted to see if you wanted to call him out and and his question and see if we can get it answered. I do, I do. Let me pop it up here. This is from uh, Jake Forster in New Zealand. Jake's a Twitter follower of mine, and I was talking to him the other night, and I said, why don't we hear from you on Fight Ads? And he said, well, I'm from New Zealand, so I always listen to the show on tape, not live, because of the time difference, obviously. So he sent a question in for us, so let me fire it away here, okay? All right. He says, hi, guys. After the Daniel Jacobs fight, when Abel Sanchez was asked about the missing body attack from Triple G, Abel said he gave the instruction, but it fell on deaf ears. When queried about the non-existent body attack again after Canelo, Abel Sanchez agreed that there was a shortcoming. Did Triple G again ignore advice from his coach? At what point do we question the effectiveness of of the fighter-coach relationship? I understand if Triple G has stopped going to the body because he fears the counters from the more formidable opponents of late, combined with the possible decrease in speed with age. But if that's the case, then Abel should just say that, rather than making it sound like an error in the game plan or a miscommunication. After all, there's been ample opportunity for Abel to sit down with Triple G and ask him what the hell is going on. If this is a matter of Triple G ignoring his coach, 
Abel Sanchez ought to cut him loose, as ridiculous as that sounds. Otherwise, the blame should fall on Abel for not doing his job. Sorry for sounding so grouchy. Mrs. Adelaide Bird still has me in a bad mood. <laughs> uh, so thanks for thanks for the question, Jake. Um, what do you think about that? I, I, you know what? That's a take that I hadn't heard before, and right. uh, I, I think a lot of that is kind of PR speak. You don't want to seem like you're throwing your fighter under the bus too much. I'm sure Abel Sanchez is not especially thrilled with the lack of the body attack, but I probably some of that is uh, the equivalent of a, a coach in the stick and ball sports uh, taking the hit so the player doesn't have to. Right. Well, I, I I can't imagine they seem like they get along very well. I can't imagine there's a fracture in the relationship. But what I will say is this. Yeah, and, and when and Golovkin seems to be as grounded of a major fighter as you'll see in a while. But, you know, when you've had so much success and you've had success for so long, it does become a little more difficult to take advice from others because you, I've been successful doing it my way for so long, blah, 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 blah. Just trust me. I'll pull it out, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe there's something along those lines, but I can't imagine that uh, it's a strained relationship or anything like that. Yeah, I don't think it's a strained relationship. I think he, he – he made a good point because that's one thing you never really heard was Abel Sanchez and Triple G having any kind of fallen out or any kind of issues. Um, it, it, it's it's a big question mark that, that nobody really has the real answer for. So I think we look for any, any type of direction uh, or any type of perspective on the situation because he didn't really go to the body too much against Jacobs. And he didn't really go to the body too much against, uh, I mean, literally only landed eight body punches against Canelo, a, a fighter who was moving a lot and tends to tire out late in fights. I mean, it's kind of the perfect recipe, not to mention Golovkin's got a vicious left hook to the body. So I don't know. You know, I've seen it with other fighters. I saw it with Miguel Cotto. I mean, his best punch for his whole career was the left hook to the body, and he went away from it for a few years. And I don't know if that was a trainer issue. I don't know if that's just the fighters seeing something else inside the ring. I mean, a lot of looks, a lot of fighters, you know, get certain direction and, and, you know, when they're in the ring, they see different things. So that could be it as well. Um, but I wouldn't, I, I don't, here's the thing. I don't care what the situation is. There ain't no way Abel Sanchez is, is dropping Gennady Golovkin. Gennady Golovkin, I mean, who else does Abel Sanchez have that could even hold a candle <laughs> to Gennady Golovkin, you know what I mean? So I think he'll live with the lack of body punching going forward. Uh, yeah. Golovkin will drop Abel before Abel drops Golovkin. <laughs> For sure. For sure. I'd like to see There's Abel Sanchez to, to train, uh, get in there and train Sergey Kovalev. You know, I thought about the same thing, that there's these reports, and that's all they are, is like urban legends, that – Golovkin and Kovalev are friendly, and they used to spar together. And those urban legends, if you remember way back when we started talking, you and I, I ta- said how much I liked Kovalev as a fighter, was a fan of Kovalev, but I kind of thought he had a little bit of bully in him. That yeah. wasn't sure what was going to happen when somebody fought back. And 
what kind of started those rumors was that Abel Sanchez, and he might have told Steve Kim or, or whoever, had, had quietly kind of said that Golovkin would pound Kovalev and he would stop, that he didn't like the punishment. He didn't. And and that makes you think maybe Sanchez might be a guy that would would bring the best back out of Sergey Kovalev. Possibly. Some Possibly. guys need hard. It's like anything else. Some guys need a hard coach that makes them work, and other guys need a softer pat on the back type of coach. For sure. Maybe Kovalev's sure. a guy that needs to have this hard ass guy that that is on him, and he needs to respect. Yeah, I couldn't see that being bad. You got any last words on um, Triple G Canelo before we move on? Yeah, Triple G won. <laughs> Adelaide Bird needs to never judge a fight again. I'm not against the second fight, and I'm not even saying that Canelo won't win the second fight. But I, I was reading, it's funny, when I looked up to see the opponent of Golovkin uh, that we were discussing, Prosca. It says right on the Google search, right at the top, Google News, from the London Daily Mail two hours ago, Gladi Golovkin's team fears Canelo won't take the rematch. Hey, I wouldn't doubt it. I would not doubt it. Um, well, you know, well, it, it's going to be a similar Ward-Kovalev situation. It might, it might be drawn out. Well, and I think Tom Loeffler's got to be smart enough to say, you know what, Gennady, we made a lot of money off this fight. We are not in bed with these. This is not like we had been fighting for lesser purses for a long time. We made enough money off this fight that we'll live quite comfortably for the rest of our lives. We need to get you in the ring. We need to get you sharp or whatever. Let's do the right thing for your career. And we're not going to wait around for these guys anymore because we made more than enough on that particular night to live off of for the rest of our lives Let's stay in the ring, and we're not going to wait around for these guys. If it means Billy Joe Saunders in December, that's great. If it means whoever, that's wonderful. Let's keep you active. And I think some of that, in the past, Oscar slash Canelo thought, well, we're the money guys. They, they'll wait for us and this because they need to make the money. Okay, that's great. You know, Is there more money to be made? Yes. Is, is Canelo still the cash cow? Yes. They've made enough money that for the rest of their life they won't have to worry about money. Now you can say, oh, you guys don't want to work with us a little bit? You do your thing, we'll do ours. I everybody knows we, Go no, ahead. What? No, no, no. I, I said everybody, everybody knows who won the fight. We'll be more than happy that if you don't want to get this rematch done and get it done quickly, everyone knows who the champ is. We'll, we'll uh, go with other avenues. All right, I think I got some I got some breaking news. It's um not necessarily um 100% legit, but from what I'm reading, Demetrius Andrade has signed a three-fight deal with HBO and will fight on October 21st and will move up to 160 pounds. You got an immediate take to that? I'm you know what? And I would say that is pretty legitimate because I'm looking at the same thing, uh, the Jezreel Corrales Golden Boy, his defense on that HBO card on the 21st. And if you scan through the article, and it's near the bottom of the article, it says 
Uh, it has not officially been announced, but but Demetrius Andrade's an opponent to be determined. First of a newly signed three fight contract with HBO. Wow. I think that's a good. I, I think that's a good thing for Demetrius Andrade. I think that's a good thing for HBO. Uh, you're bulking up the middleweight division, which is a division that, uh, with the exception of Charlo Brother One, that you have most of the big fighters now with your acquisition of Daniel Jacobs. I think that's a good signing for both people. Very interesting. Yes, with Daniel Jacobs as well. Nice. That's a good response. I'd like to see that, you know, because a lot of people were uh, very skeptical of the, the future of HBO, especially with the top-ranked deal in ESPN. But now you got Jacobs. You're getting Andre. Um, you know, obviously you still have Canelo. You still have Triple G, and you have um, some other fighters as well. You still not have David Lemieux. You still have Lemieux um, and, and anybody else in, in Golden, Golden Boy stable. So... That's that's a really good move. I like it. I well, like especially. I mean, if if he fights, that's the thing. Like we hadn't seen Andre fight a meaningful fight in I don't even know how long, but you know. Well, HBO has got another fight card coming up from Monaco coming up, which with some with a fight card that is interesting, yet one that you look at and this is normally not the type of fight, not the type of card that HBO usually buys. And I think this is a good thing for HBO. I, I've wondered about this for years. Why don't they show more? Well, they've got a show here on November 4th from Monaco with Eddie Hearn, uh, Dimitri Bivol against uh, it's a gentleman from Australia, uh, Trent Broadhurst. It's the Jamie McDonald laborio Solis rematch, if you remember uh, seeing that on a PBC card where Solis dominated McDonald. I had him winning by numerous points, and they gave the decision to McDonald. And there's a uh, it's, there's another fight on there. Uh, it is there's another fight on the card. It's a three fight. Oh, Scott Quigg against oh okay uh, a gentleman from the Ukraine, and they also may show a Jer- uh, Derek Chisora fight. That's the type of card that is interesting for worldwide boxing fans, but it's the kind of fight that probably doesn't cost HBO, or it could have been Showtime too, I guess, wouldn't have cost them a mint to buy, but in the past they really didn't buy them. And I think that's a great move by HBO. You know, It can't cost you a lot. It introduces fighters to your audience. I think that they need to be doing more of that. That's how you combat top rank a little bit. Yep, yep, I agree. I agree. Well, good deal there, man. Um, uh, let's move on. Let's move on to Andre Ward, your, your, your best friend. And, and for those of you out there who have not had an opportunity to read Sean Heimberger's tribute to Andre Ward entitled Goodbye, Andre, on Thoughts of RS, I'm about to actually tweet it out right now as we speak. Do yourself a favor and read this article. And, and I must, let me speak my piece real quick, Sean, because you need, you need a lot of credit for this article. And here's why. Um, it's, it's, it's really easy for the media and, and boxing writers and sports writers to show adoration and, 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 and pay tribute to a, to a great fighter. It's, it's the easy route to go. It's um you know it's 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 that I don't even want to say a thin line necessarily but you know it's a lot of people would say that's the at you know the best etiquette the best etiquette you know what I'm saying look he's retiring let's take the easy route let's take the high road 
let's just thank him for all he's done. And, and that's pretty much 99% of the articles that you would have read pertaining to the retirement of Andre Ward. Um, but Sean Heinberger, being the credible writer that he is, said, no, nah, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the truth. I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel about Andre Ward. And, and I think that's a part of writing, that's a part of journalism today that is lacking. Too many people want to be politically correct and have that quote-unquote etiquette. And that's why I love this article that you wrote, Goodbye, Andre. Like I said, I'm tweeting it out right now. Because for those of you, I don't want to give away the whole thing, and I'm going to read a portion of it for the, for the listeners out there. Um, because you talked about, you kind of built him up. In the beginning of this article, you, you talked about all the things he achieved and, and all the reasons why boxing fans and sports fans, you know, would kind of gravitate towards him and, 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 and congratulate him and, and think he's a great, amazing fighter. And then you let him know, you gave him a little disclaimer on what was about to happen. And then you let him know the truth. You dug beneath, you dug, you, 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 you dug beneath the layers and you peeled back that onion and you let everybody see what you saw, your perspective on what you saw over the years of Andre Wars. And I thought it was fantastic. And like, I'm not, I'm not here just, you know, uh, just, just, um, I don't know what the word would be, you know, trying to build you up. Cause you're, you know, you're, you're out of the show with me. I mean, I, I'm, this is, this is real. This is real um, uh, gratitude towards you, man, because I thought it was absolutely fantastic, man. So uh, if you have any words that you want to say on it before I read a portion of it, uh, let, let the fans know. Well, I, that's very nice of you to say. I, I appreciate it. I, I, that article I probably spent, and the blog is now, uh, it, it'll be turning 10 early next year. Or might have turned 10 already. I'm an old man. They all blur together. But that was probably the longest article that I ever took to write because there is a perception to people that know me and read my stuff and listen to the show, et cetera, that I'm an Andre Ward hater. And and I don't consider myself a hater of anybody in boxing. There's guys that I like more than others. There's guys that I dis, not, dislike is different than hate. And hater is a a word we all toss around, myself included, very lightly. And I didn't want someone to read that and think, oh, this is the voice of an Andre Ward hater. I wanted to put it in what I thought was how I saw it with with legitimate points that weren't being raised in the boxing media. And I was – when when I heard about it, I read an article by Dan Rayfield, and, and I'm going like, oh, how he dominated this, this, the uh, Super 6 tournament. I said, yeah, well, you know, he did, but there's more to it than that. I, I, I think sometimes in our uh, fast food media, from everything from starting at the top with CNN versus Fox all the way down to bloggers and, and below, there's a tendency to tell the easy story the quick story so we can move on to the next story. And I thought it was important for boxing people or or people that are just getting into boxing to understand there's more to it than just this. Don't yeah. take my word for it. Take what I wrote and 
dig into that and see that what I wrote is the truth or what or how my perception of the truth. But it's so easy for people that are new t- newer fans or people that don't know to read a respected voice like Dan Rayfield and assume that that's the truth. And uh, if I made if people don't have to agree with what I wrote or they can agree with some and not others, I just hope that they uh, respect that. I, I tried to take a piece from a different tack with a contrarian viewpoint and bring up a some facts and a point of view that weren't always being discussed when it came to Andre Ward. For sure. And that's the thing. I mean, there's power in false narrative. And when a Dan Rayfield or, or any other writer, you know, tries to doesn't really take the time to, to really give the full story. Well, then, you know, you're 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 not you're not. You're not really doing your job. Yeah, because there might be someone who never really saw Andre Ward fight. And all they hear is, oh, man, he was pound for pound the best, and he's been pound for pound the best, you know, uh, on and off with Floyd Mayweather since blah, 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 and he dominated the Super 6. And they don't really get, you know, what actually happened during that tournament, you know. And, and that's what was fascinating about your your your, your blog was that you kind of went in and gave the background story, the behind-the-scenes look at – exactly what happened and why those fights took place and where they took place and, 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 and all the concessions that were made for, for Ward in that tournament. And I just thought it was, it, it was fascinating. Um, I wanted to read this last part, man, that just this real quick segment. Uh, you said, um, was Andre Ward a great fighter? Depends on your definition of such. Was he effective? Certainly. Did he win his fights? The record book says so. Did he fight good competition? Yes, but not as good as some would like you to believe, especially when you look past the obvious. Was he exciting to watch? No. Was he a clean fighter? Sergey Kovalev, Mikhail Kessler, Edwin Rodriguez, who wore decision in a foul-filled fight, would say no, and I'd be inclined to agree. Did he ever put the sport first? I'd say no. Although you could say the first Kovalev... uh, I'm sorry, say the first Kovalev fight was close as he came, uh, as he came to that as the second fight was cramped, uh, contractually mandated. All of these things add up to be considered along with the wins and losses, and though I think he'll be a deserving addition to the boxing hall, I lean towards making him the best of his weight class, uh, best of the weight class's generation, but not quite great. Sometimes greatness is about more than just an undefeated record. Great stuff, man. Thank you. I appreciate that. I I sometimes get drawn off into the melancholy of things. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, that's that's what makes for the best writing, you know, because you're passionate about it. You're like not you're passionate about boxing, but you're passionate about Andre Ward. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a difference. Like, if you're writing an article about, I don't know, um, give me a fighter, Jamal, Jamal Charlo, it, it's not going to have the same venom. It's not going to have the same passion that you had when you wrote this article. Probably very true. It, it takes a long time to build up passion in anything. It's very rare <laughs> that you find passion the first time for anything or anybody. We were talking earlier about Donald Trump. I have passion because of 30 years ago he ruined the USFL. It, passion is something that is developed. It's not anything that you fall into overnight. Sure. Jamal Charlo would have to have a couple years of uh, – to develop the same passion that you have towards Andre Ward. So, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. 
But with him retiring, I th- it opens up a, a pretty good um, debate on the Boxing Hall of Fame because you have so many great fighters that are retiring this year. It's going to be tough to decide who's actually going to make that first ballot. I'm not sure if you saw the names that are on there, Sean, but, I mean, you got Floyd Mayweather, you have Andre Ward, you have Juan Manuel Marquez, I believe you have Shane Mosley, you have Roy Jones Jr., uh, you have Vladimir Klitschko, and only, if I'm not mistaken, only three can get in, correct? I believe it is three. But the what, three, what they call from that, you know, they they have like an era-based thing where it's like, Three from so many, and I believe it's three. And by the way, if anybody wants to join me, I have tentative plans that I think I'm going to do Hall of Fame weekend this year. Oh, nice! Up there, so if anybody Maybe we'll do wants to uh, fight heads on the road or something, <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, I believe I'm going to try to get up there and do that this year. Uh, I'm I'm looking it up right now for, but I believe it is three. Yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure it's three. But out of those guys, off the top of your head, out of those guys, it, it, is, it is three, by the way, because I'm looking and they have not had in in the modern category. They have not put in more than three guys since the inaugural class, where they put in, you know, half of the, you know, boxing. So it is three. Of the, so your question is of those three guys, who would get my votes? Yep. Ooh. <laughs> it's a tough one. Uh, you know what? I got to be honest with you. <clears throat> uh, Floyd's love Juan Manuel Marquez was a guy that I was always my guy again in the Pacquiao Wars. Right. But and normally and you could make a case that all those guys are first ballot guys, but under those restrictions, somebody's got to win, somebody's got to lose. I think you have to go with Floyd Mayweather. I think you have to go with. Uh, Vladimir Klitschko, how do you leave the guy that has the record for most heavyweight title defenses off the first ballot? And then you have Roy Jones versus Andre Ward is what you're essentially left with. And you can make an argument that at one time or the other, depending on your perspective, they were the best fighters in the game. Both of them have flaws in their record in which Ward's is the reluctance to leave Oakland. With Roy's, it is the... Uh, stayed way past his prime. They both had guys they really tried to avoid fighting. I think Ward was more avoiding Kovalev for as long as he could, and Roy Jones was Darius Mikulszewski. So I'm going to duck that question and and spit it (laughs) off into another question. Okay. And this might be my tiebreaker if I'm trying to decide between the two, to be honest with you. And they fought at the same weight classes. You put a prime Andre Ward against a prime Roy Jones, who wins? Oh, it's Roy Jones. Well, there's your answer, and that's why I would put Roy Jones in. I know people will look at they'll look at Roy's record, and they'll see the horrible losses at the end of his career. And the Tarver loss doesn't look great compared to Ward's undefeated record. But they both fought, you know, both of them basically made their biggest name in the super middleweight division. Clearly, along with Joe Calzaghe, the best two, the best super middleweights of all time. I'm going to give my vote to Roy Jones 
by a hair because they're very comparable all the way down the line. But I think if they would have fought, and if they would have fought, I think Roy Jones would have won. So let, let's say my votes go to <clears throat> Floyd Mayweather, Vladimir Klitschko, and Roy Jones by an eyelash over Andre Ward. Although, and I, I'm willing to add a little caveat to that and say, I will give each of you my vote for the Boxing Hall of Fame if you promise to leave the HBO commentating booth. <laughs> That's funny. Add a caveat. There. I can be bought. <clears throat> I um I agree. I agree with those three guys. Um, now let me throw this in there. Let's just say, what if Manny Pacquiao retires this year and he's a part of that same group? Does it change? You know what? I don't think so. Uh, as great as Manny Pacquiao was, I think in his, I, no, I don't think so. I, I think I would still have to go. Uh, clearly, Manny gets uh, the nod on competition over either of those gentlemen, but nobody beat Peak Ward. Clearly, nobody beat Peak Roy Jones, where Peak Manny did lose some fights. So, no, I don't think that changes any, although, again, it would be too bad for him because he's another – all five, and, and if you add Manny Pacquiao in there, all six of those guys are clearly first ballot fighters that because of the the way rules are set up, you know, there's – well, and think about this. Let's, we just named six names. Is, is that right? Floyd, yep. Roy, Ward – Klitschko, Marquez, Manny, Mosley, and Mm -hmm. and Tim Bradley. Oh, I forgot about Tim Bradley. (laughs) So one of these seven gentlemen are going to be third ballot Hall of Famers. Yeah, interesting, right? Yeah, and, and that doesn't count anybody that retires in that time. You know, I mean, it... It, I, I kind of – I don't really like – I understand why they do it. You keep it to three because it keeps it interesting. You, you you don't want to have classes that are too big because then you'll eventually run out of guys. But in this particular case, that's good. You're going to – you've basically hijacked the Hall of Fame for two years. The, that the three – you would think that barring somebody quitting at, out of left field that we don't foresee – that that is your 2018 and 2019 class. That's unreal. That's a that's an incredible class, man. <laughs> that's just really cool. I, you know, I mean, you can make an argument that the the three guys of the 19 class that don't get into the 18 class are that's that's a phenomenal class as well. I mean, it's just one of these things of how of how they're going to do it. But that that is a phenomenal class, and it's going to be two of them. And if you retire, so I'm t- all you uh, fighters out there that want to be in the Hall of Fame and don't retire, keep fighting for a little while. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, that might be why Manny is still fighting. He don't want to. He don't want to um, get shortchanged. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the, you know, Mr. Golovkin and a couple other guys, like, you know, fight a couple more years. Make sure that you, uh, you know, fight in January 2019 to make it be your swan song. Buy you know, <laughs> yourself sure. some time. Oh sure. All right, man. Well let's um let's get into some of these fights, man, as we're waiting for um Steve Kim to join us. 
Um, this fight's over this past weekend. Some really entertaining bouts. You had Friday night, you had uh, on ESPN, top-ranked ESPN, you had Gilberto Ramirez against Jesse Hart, which was a pretty entertaining fight. And you also had Oscar Valdez um, defending his title against uh, Genesis Cervania. Yeah, Genesis Cervania. Yeah. Uh, and then sat, and then Saturday you had the uh, the the cruiserweight uh, quarterfinal fight, World Boxing Super Series series, Unier Dortikos against Dmitry Kudryashov. Hopefully, I didn't butcher that. <laughs> and then later that well, he night, lost, you had, so you don't have to worry about that for too long. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And then later that night, you had uh, Jorge Linares against uh, Luke Campbell. So. Quality fights, man. Enter- entertaining fights. But let's start with Jesse Hart and Gilberto Ramirez, which I thought was a really good fight. Um, you know, I was quick to jump on on, on Gilberto Ramirez because he just wasn't impressing impressing me. And then, lo and behold, he knocks Jesse Hart down. <laughs> but he was unable to finish him. Um, my quick take on the fight was Jesse. If that fight was fifteen rounds, I think Jesse Hart wins because by the end of that fight. He would, he kind of figured Gilberto Ramirez out and was able to nullify what he was what Ramirez was doing well earlier in the fight and was able to land some really good shots. And I know you picked Jesse Hart to win that fight, um, so kind of give me your perspective on it and what you thought happened. It was funny where you're you're taking the hit for for commenting how Ramirez didn't do anything for you. I commented after the first round, I had a feeling Jesse Hart, and boom, he was knocked down. So so much for that. <laughs> uh, I I think you're yeah in the days where a 15 round fight I think he would have been very difficult to beat and I think Jesse Hart earned a ton of fans with not just the effort after he was knocked down because he kept coming kept trying etc but his post fight interview was terrific hey you know what I fought very well tonight I proved a lot of things yeah I got knocked down yeah the fight if it wasn't for the knockdown you know maybe I get a draw out of this on one card which is true. Yeah, but I'll be back. Folk, it was about as classy a post-fight interview from a loser as you could get to the point that you're in Arizona, which is a definite pro-Zerto uh, uh, crowd, and they were cheering Jesse Hart. I-, I thought that was very classy. I think, And people are going to want to see Jesse Hart again. As for uh, Gilberto, who I always want to call him Ramirez. He's the one guy in boxing who I can, I always have to check myself. It's Gilberto Martinez. And I constantly want to call him Ramirez. Uh, I think he's one of these guys that in baseball parlance would be a solid all around guy. He doesn't do anything terrifically well, but he doesn't do anything poorly with tons of flaws. I think you could put him in with five or six guys in the top 10 at 168. And he could beat any of them, and he could lose to any of them. I, I, I don't see a future superstar in him, but I certainly see a guy that could, you know, if handled correctly, be a champion for a long time. He's got the his, – his build is, is a really odd one for 168. He's sure. not a – he looked – even though he was shorter than Jesse Hart – he looked like he was built out of a block of granite. He was <laughs> he looked he's got that look to be he looks like a linebacker or like a tight end. And at one sixty eight you don't see that build very often. And I, I that's the one thing that always uh, catches my eye when he fights. It's like this guy just seems like he's so much physically bigger. And he's really not, but he just looks that way. 
I hear you. Well, to give us some more perspective on the fights from this past weekend and and everything else uh, boxing-related is a special guest from UCN uh, and also the uh, the, the show The Next Round and Three Knockdown Rule is Steve Kim. So let me get Steve on the line here. Steve, how's it going, man? You're live on Fight I'm doing Head. well. Great to join you guys. How you doing? Uh, doing really well, man. Doing really well. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, man. We're really excited about it, and I know our listeners are as well. Oh, thanks for having me. Definitely, definitely. Well, um, let's, let's start with this. Uh, you know, I think everyone wants to hear your perspective on what happened over the weekend. Um, you can start with the Linares Campbell fight, man. What would you see? I saw a fight that was much more difficult stylistically than I think even Linares and Golden Boy anticipated. Now, keep this in mind. They didn't choose this fight. This was a WBA mandatory. And Campbell's length and his reach and his size made things very difficult for Linares in there. And after the second-round knockdown, I thought he won a few more rounds. He banked the early part of the fight and built the lead. But from right around the fifth, sixth round on, all the way till about the 10th, it, it became a real chess match, real tit-for-tat type of action. I don't think either guy really dominated, and more than once you saw long left hands of Campbell snap the head back of Lenard, which you don't see all that often. And it wasn't a very big crowd at the Forum, guys. I, I certainly think there was some consumer fatigue in the Los Angeles area because we've had a lot of shows recently. But the only people you really heard was the throng of Campbell fans that made the trip from the U.K. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one thing you don't see Lenares do a lot is miss a lot of punches and lunge and reach where he becomes off balance. And that happened a lot. I noticed that because Luke Campbell did a very nice job of controlling distance and at, at times just stepping back and stepping forward with that right jab. And I thought Lenars had to kind of scramble that last round or two to do enough on the scorecards to win a decision. Now, I had it 115-112, but if you look at the scorecards, if he does not score that knockdown, guys, that fight is a split decision draw. For sure. Yep. That's the exact score that I had it. I, I, I thought that, that once Campbell got his berries, he was the guy that was controlling the exchanges. Lenars seemed to be a lot more uh, – a little he- – it was almost like he was – Puzzled, but like you said, puzzled by the reach, and that this was a different type of guy than he had been fighting of late. Is fighting Anthony Crowley, et cetera. The easy term that so many are talking about now is with with Golovkin, et cetera, is slippage. Slippage, and Lenars is a guy that in the past has cut a lot and gotten hit a little bit. Do you think that that is like this is the the point that we start to see the downturn with Lenars? Or was it just a awkward, difficult style from a guy that might have had his number stylistically? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I mentioned this uh, on a tweet right after the fight. I don't think this had anything to do with age. I think that they say if styles make fights, styles also can unmake fights. And Luke Campbell is your classic, traditionally trained amateur fighter. I mean, don't forget this guy was a 2012 gold medalist for England, and there's a reason why a lot of managers, and they've told me this, they don't fight Southpaws until they have to, or if they have to, and they especially don't want to fight Southpaws that are tall and have a good reach. And then you combine the fact that this guy has a very good boxing IQ, 
despite what we thought of Campbell coming in because of that early loss to Mendy, sometimes those early losses don't mean all that much. And it was a tough fight. I get the sense that if they fought ten times, that's probably what you'd get. And, you know, obviously Eddie Hearn of Matchroom Sports, he believed that his guy won the fight. And I told him when I was talking to him after the fight that if that fight was in Manchester or in London, we probably have a new champion, but but that is part of having the home canvas advantage and being the house fighter for the night. For sure, for sure. W- now, w- wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that can't? Would do you think that off of this performance, wouldn't Campbell against say? Would you consider him the favorite if he fought Terry Flanagan in the UK? Mm, boy, that's an interesting one. Uh, we got <laughs> you might have two southpaws that. Uh, that don't really mix with each other. I don't know if that'd be a great fight. I, I mean, stylistically, I don't see much happening. Uh, you know, would it do good business? I'm sure it would, but I believe Flanagan is with Frank Warren. And, and Frank Warren and Eddie Hearn, they they, they don't do a lot of business, okay, uh, that, that I've seen recently. I, I get the sense that if you're Golden Boy, that I don't know if they want to do the Mikey Garcia fight for whatever reason. I think part of the reason is Mikey Garcia does not want to sign – any type of multi-fight contract. And with that in mind, I don't know if he'll get any of these fights that he keeps calling for with top ranker Golden Boy. And Oscar De La Hoya, after the fight, guys, came over to press row. We had a chance to talk to him for a few minutes, and I just chimed in. I said, Oscar, are, are you interested in the Mikey Garcia fight? Because that's clearly what Linares stated afterwards. And Oscar kind of gave an answer that kind of danced around the question. He said, you know, we're going to weigh our options. We're going to see where we can go. And maybe he'll move up to 140, and I'm thinking to myself, 140, I just, I, I don't even know where that came from, but it wasn't exactly the most definitive answer. Now, I, I did read something on Boxing Scene right now before I came on with you guys, that Linares against Flanagan, which would be a unification bout, that there's some chatter about that, uh, but I'll be honest with you guys, with the way Flanagan fights, I, I don't know how much different it would be from the Campbell fight, personally, if I could wave a magic wand as just a pure boxing fan, I'd like to see Lenars Garcia at some point early in 2018. I'm with you on that because Flanagan is a very awkward guy. I don't think that's going to be any more entertaining than what you saw Saturday night. In, in, no. in politics, there's no way you'll see uh, Lenars Robert Easter. Yeah, I agree. And that's the shame. Listen, and unfortunately, I don't even think you'll see Lenars against Ray Beltron. Because uh, I don't know when the last time Golden Boy and Top Rank did a fight together. So we'll have to sort this out, but Linares got this date. It was a mandatory fight. Golden Boy got the HBO slot because they wanted to pair a live broadcast with the Canelo Triple G replay. So I think the odds are that we probably won't see Linares till the beginning of 2018. The question is at that point... Who will he be facing? And, and where's the money at 140 at this particular point? I, I, I that that sounds like a very odd thing for him to say because right. there's no more money at 140 right now. Probably even less than there is at staying at 135. Right, and there's also four vacant belts. And uh, listen, I am a huge Lenares advocate. I've been on this guy from the very beginning when he, when he first came to the states as a sparring partner for Manny Pacquiao. Uh, 18, 19 years old. He was one of the most impressive young stylists I've ever seen. But we know the Achilles heel. He does not have great punch resistance. I mean, every fight, 
you're kind of on that tightrope, and you're just thinking to yourself, one punch can literally end it. I don't see him faring very well at 140. He's a lightweight. He should stay at lightweight. And there are fights to be made at 135. Um, that's one of my pet peeves about today's boxing is the weight jumping. These guys don't plant their flags and, and really create or uh, some sort of legacy. Um, but that is today's business. Well, that, 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 that's why I've loved your work for so long because that, that's been, uh, as an older guy, I, that's, that's what I remember. I mean, guys used to legitimately clean a division out before they moved up, which is why when I became a boxing fan, it was, oh, Alexis Arguello is going to become the first four-time, uh, going for this four-time division. Now it's like almost commonplace because there's so many more belts and so many more divisions, and guys just dump it to move on to the next or avoid this mandatory or that particular guy. And I think, as, as, you, all, as you say, uh, belts matter. They do matter. They matter a lot. And, but at the same time, they matter so much that guys will dump them on the side of the road for a more attractive one. No, and the belts matter, but this is where you have to be a nuanced observer and do research. I mean, you can't compare the four title belts attained by Ricky Burns and Adrian Broner and think that they're anywhere near equal in value to Roman Gonzalez. I mean, Roman Gonzalez in every division that he won a major title at, 105, 108, 112, and 115, was considered the guy. While I don't think Broner and Burns have ever been that guy. And for as good as Mikey Garcia is, and I think he's one of the top half-dozen practitioners of the sweet science, I mean, has he ever really been defined by, wow, look at the work he did in this division? I don't, I don't think he has. I wasn't as excited about Garcia Broner as a lot, in the bo- a lot of people in the boxing media seem to be. And I thought he looked good in that fight, but I, I, I didn't see a guy that you hungered to see at 140. And, and where you're, you're just dead on right. It's, it's nuance is such a word that in not just the boxing media and so many stops of media period is a word that is often lacking. You have right, to be able to it, read between the lines. Right. Do some research. I mean, this is why um, what was interesting to me is that Mikey Garcia wants to fight Miguel Cotto. And I'm like, wait a minute. First <laughs> of all, Freddie Roach has told me and any, anyone else that asked him, He's not making Miguel Cotto come down to 154. He just won the WBO title against Yoshihiro Kamagai. And then Mikey Garcia, last I checked, is still the WBC 135-pound champion. In what world does that fight really make sense? And given the fact that at 135, it's a strong division, there are fights to be made. Now, maybe not in the real world with the alliances and the politics, but... To have Mikey Garcia win a belt, and I think it was against Dejan's Latikanen, right? And then he moves up to 140 to fight Broner for, when there's no title at stake. And now, instead of moving back down, you think, he's actually going up to 54? It just doesn't sit well with me for some reason. Well, it doesn't make much sense to make to make that fight other than – how do you expect to be successful in that fight if you're well, Mikey Garcia? You hope that Miguel Cotto turns old. Um, that That's probably what they're thinking. But, Miguel, you know, listen, Mikey Garcia does this for money. 
Okay, newsflash, and I've written about this before, and he's one of the few fighters that I've ever talked to that he won't give you the I love my job line. He doesn't give you that cliche. He wouldn't do it for free. And he says, I'm good at this. I can earn a lot of money at it. So I don't think he's looking. I don't even think he cares about his legacy. I really don't, which is fine. Legacy does not pay the bills. But, you know, he's a guy that – what I find interesting about Mikey is that he calls out a lot of different names. And all these names basically are with companies – well, one of them he sued – and stayed out of his contract for two years. They're, they're not in a rush to do any business with them. And the other one is Golden Boy. And my intel says to me that unless Mikey Garcia signs a multi-fight contract, he's not getting these fights as one-offs. He's not Ray Leonard with Mike Trainer. okay? He's not that type of franchise. He has to live in the real world where he has a dedicated promoter that's going to work for his interest. Could you call Mikey Garcia the most pragmatic man in boxing? Yeah, he's almost too smart for his own good. Uh, as calculating and as well thought out as he is inside the ring, it's almost he does that almost to a fault outside the ring. I wrote a story during the second anniversary of his layoff that at that point, from the time he fought Juan Carlos Burgos, I believe that was January of 2014, that he had lost at least six or seven HBO fights. Now, at that point, he was beginning to make a million dollars a fight. He was supposed to fight Yuri Gamboa. That eventually went to Terrence Crawford, who really capitalized on that event. I would estimate that he lost about... Seven to eight million dollars minimum, and it was at that stage that Top Rank was grooming him as a Manny Pacquiao opponent, and he would have made about four or five million dollars off of that fight. So, I mean, he got his freedom, which he cherishes, but I, I just wonder at what cost did it really come at? Hmm. Interesting. Um, so there's news. I saw some news today about Demetrius Andre signing a, a contract with HBO. Do you have any any insight on that? Yeah, he's gonna come back October 21st, I believe, in Verona on the Boxing After Dark, and they're trying to find him an opponent. The one name that I heard was Alantes Fox, who's really this tall welterweight, and just in talk around that situation, there's no one really else to to fight right now. And for some reason, the WBA which had mandated that he has to fight Laura, is letting Laura Terrell go Shea. So I don't understand how that slipped out of their hands, but Demetrius Andre has never really quite recovered from giving his autograph to Rock Nation Sports while he had a deal with Banner Promotions and Star Boxing. And they, they had him lined up to fight one of the Charlo brothers on Showtime, I believe it was December of 2014, and then once he decided to sign with Rock Nation, it was a very, very ill-fated move, and his career has never really regained that momentum. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Inactivity, man, is killing, killing his career. Um, Oscar Valdez uh, in his fight Friday night. Uh, pretty, really exciting fight uh, uh, against uh, Genesis Cervania. What were your thoughts on Valdez? What do you see from him coming forward? And, I'll, and, and you think a fight with him in Frampton might come to fruition? Well, I, I, I'm a big Valdez fan, but I think he's become that guy that's really one-dimensional. Every shot is very hard, 
And it's the little things. He could do all the big things. I, they need to really tighten up the screws on the little things. And one thing I've noticed the last two fights against Madiaga and this past weekend is he loves to get in firefights. And all his fights are physically grueling. And he doesn't have a lot of rounds where he just kind of lays off the jab and, and sticks it in cruise control. And I've noticed this in sparring. I've seen him a lot. A lot of his sparring sessions are gym wars where a lot of, all of his punches are hard, and that translates over to the fights. But I think he needs to be more well-rounded. He needs to make some sort of metamorphosis or evolve the way Marco Antonio Barrera did post-Junior Jones, or he will have his Junior Jones moment. Now, I love the thought of a Frampton fight. Bob Aaron mentioned that to me last week as a possible fight now that Frampton is signed with Frank Warren. But... You know, I, I speak often to Frank Espinosa, the manager of Oscar Valdez, and he was very blunt in his assessment. It, it was a good, solid, exciting win, but they understand the flaws that need to be cleaned up before you get to that top level. So I get the sense that his own management wants to kind of develop his skill set a little bit more before going up to that level of a Carl Frampton. For sure. For sure. Any um any word on pay-per-view buys for Canelo Triple G? Last, uh, the week of the fight when I was out there in Vegas, someone at HBO who's always given me very good information in the past told me that it was tracking very, very good, not great. And when I asked what the number was, it was right around $1.4 Now you fast forward to now, uh, I spoke to some people at HBO on Saturday, and I said, does it look like it hit right around 1.4? And they nodded yes. So okay. the reports of $2 million, I, I don't think are true. I think that's a little far-fetched, especially given the fact that a major market like Houston, which has a lot of Latin buys, was flooded out. Uh, the situation right. in Florida did not help. That takes away buys. Um, but as for $2 million, the listen, they're actually probably going to aim for that next Cinco de Mayo as they do it again, should that fight become a reality. What do you, what do you think happens? In the, I mean, how do you see the rematch playing out? Let's say it happens in May um, as opposed to waiting any longer than that. Well, I, I, I think it'll be a similar fight. The question is who will make the necessary adjustments? Can Canelo keep the fight more or less in the center of the ring and can Golovkin be a little bit more accurate with his punch placement and, and perhaps make more of a commitment to the body the second time around? Uh, the variable that concerns me for Golovkin is at that point he'll be 36 years old. And so you never know. Father time is very, very difficult to outrun, especially given the fact he has a style where he puts himself in harm's way. So, you know, we'll see. But I thought the first fight was very good. I thought Golovkin won it. I thought it was pretty clear that he won it, although it was a very good fight, and you could label it close. But can Canelo, in the rematch, perhaps be a little bit quicker off the trigger and back up Golovkin more? I don't know if he can because, see, people are – here's the thing that the, – the, the, the one thing that's said to me that I completely disagree with, people say that – Canelo backed up on the ropes. You know, he did, but he didn't do it willingly. When those jabs are coming right down the barrel of the gun and it hits you, there's a reason why guys go back. Listen, most fighters like to move forward. They don't want to stick it in reverse gear. I don't think Canelo's any different for as good as he is off the ropes. For sure. For sure. Sean, you got anything else for Steve before we let him go? 
Yeah, though, though, I, I want to ask you the question that we were talking about earlier, and uh, we were talking. Ramon asked me about the Boxing Hall of Fame coming up next year, where, where there's only three people involved in it that you can put in from a particular year, and Ramon's talking about this packed class for 2018. And I normally don't pay too much attention to this kind of stuff, but it got really made me think. You you have to assume Floyd's one of them, and I would think you'd have to put Klitschko in as another one, being with the record for heavyweight title defenses, and we were talking about who gets that final slot. Roy Jones, Andre Ward. And what it came down to me is, with you know, I, I pro- finally made my decision on if Prime Roy fought Prime Andre, who would win? But let, let me get your take on that. Who would you vote for, and who would win oh, a Prime well, now, Roy, Prime Andre fight? Are you sure Roy's not going to have a fight in Russia later this year or early next year? <laughs> I'm not it convinced Roy's done. Okay? <laughs> um, now, let's say he is done. I believe that Andre Ward, on many other occasions, would be a first ballot Hall of Famer. But this is an unusually loaded class. Because, you know, I think that he certainly deserves it. Uh, I'm not a fan of his, but I. But listen, the truth is the truth. His resume gets him in the Canastota. But for as many problems as Roy Jones has had, and if you believe in quote-unquote tarnishing the legacy, his last five years have, have not cloaked him in glory. But But I'm with you, Sean, that if you go at peak value years, which is a term they use for other sports, that, like, in other words, we don't judge Patrick Ewing as a – Seattle Supersonic or Akeem Olajuwon as a Toronto Raptor, right? I mean, we, <laughs> right. we judge these guys from, like, whatever their rookie years on till about their eighth or ninth. And at, at that point in time, I, I would say that Roy is probably more highly regarded than Andre. But you know what, though? If you actually look at the resume because of the Super Six and some of the other fights that Andre was willing to take – Andre might have a stronger, more well-rounded um, resume, but then, you know, he did win a heavyweight title. It's close. I actually think you could make an argument that it, it may not actually come down to Roy versus Andre. I think it's a natural comparison because they're both Olympians, uh, won medals, both African-Americans, both on HBO. But um, what if it came down to Klitschko against Andre Ward? You know, Klitschko had losses against Journeyman. Andre didn't. You know, hmm. it's a tough one. And then you toss Marquez in there. I mean, to me, I would put Klitschko in because of longevity, quality of work. Yeah, but it, it, losses, of course, hurt you. But it's not a it, it's not a deal breaker <laughs> for me. But we were talking, and it, it just the more that we talked, the more I thought I went, "Wow, that really is a tough." You know, Andre Ward probably has the bigger and better wins because I mean, Steve, you remember when Andre Ward was fighting, you know, the Rick Frazier's and playing basketball before he fought Eric Luca and uh, and the gimmicks almost to keep him interested in a fight that normal normally nobody would pay attention to. And it's just, but that's what made me kind of think, you know, if it came down to peak Roy against peak Andre, who would win that fight? It just got me thinking about, and I've never been an Andre Ward fan, and I've to the point right, of being. You know, be, but we also, listen, and Andre, I remember his second pro fight getting buzzed by Kenny Cost on Fox Sports. <laughs> and it's hard to find footage of that. It's like it's been scrubbed clean by Stalin <laughs> or something. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah. 
uh, Darnell Boone buzzed him. You know, and yeah. we have to be honest. Listen, most people thought Sergey Kovalev deserved the first fight. For sure. You know, um, I, I agree with you. Roy Jones, at his peak, is thought of more highly than Andre. But it may not come down to those two. You know, um, it's, it's a tough one. By the way, I'm just wondering. I didn't know this, but why does the International Boxing Hall of Fame limit the amount of guys that can get in? I mean, if you look at other Hall of Fame, sometimes there's one player that gets in, sometimes it's three, and other times it's six or seven. Uh, I think that's kind of a strange rule that they have. It is. Uh, they know, might have to I, make I, an adjustment just for that year based I mean, on when who's, you, who's we, on the ballot. We, we, we were talking that we had seven guys that, assuming Roy's truly done, that in a normal year, if it was open voting, would have really big cases, which uh, you had three guys, Andre, Roy, Floyd, Klitschko, Marquez, Tim Bradley, Shane Mosley. Right, and see, I think Floyd is the guy that's in for sure. Right. Love him or hate him, he's absolutely the guy that's going to be in, like, he's going to be on every ballot. Then, see, in boxing being a global sport, if you look at some of the, uh, like, stuff that happens in the Heisman Trophy, a lot of this is provincial, parochial that regions will vote for their guys. You would have to say that a lot of the Mexican media members in the West Coast, guys like me, who, by the way, I don't have a vote. I'm not part of the BWAA. They're going to put Marquez in there, okay? Hmm. Tim Bradley, I get the sense, will be in the Hall of Fame sooner rather than later. I don't think he's a first ballot guy, though. And I've always said he should be in the Hall of Fame one day. Um, the other names. Give me some of the other names again. Shane Mosley. Shane Mosley. See, where, where Shane is going to get hurt, and it, and it is going to be unfair, and again, he's another guy that will definitely get in. It, it is deserved. But the last half, the last portion of his career will probably be held against him for whatever reason. And, and you know, I don't know if it's like baseball where if you have a PED bust, and he certainly had his issues with Balco, I don't know if that's going to be held against him. But he also ended up with a lot of losses. Now, where does James Tony stand? Didn't he retire this year, or has he not made that clear? Yeah, oh, I, I don't think sure. he's really made that clear. But I think that I, I myself a huge James Tony fan. I, I would yeah, put him in James in a heartbeat. James Tony um, is a Hall of Famer. I don't know if he's going to be first ballot or second ballot. But when I when you say Steve Gundahead is James Tony a Hall of Famer, I say absolutely no doubt about it. So it's going to be tough, but I don't understand why they are limiting this. Um, You know, in baseball, I think the rule is if you get 75% of the votes, you're in. And so sometimes there's years with one player, and sometimes I've seen four or five. I I don't know why the International Boxing Hall of Fame set up its uh, criteria the way they did. This is just a guess guess on my part, strictly an amateur guess. Canastota is not all that far from Cooperstown. Is it possible that somebody, when they were setting up the setting up the constraints, you know, the general laying it out, what the rules were going to be, that somebody from Cooperstown said, you know, you don't want to have too many guys in one class because you you have well, one yeah, great class yeah, well, and then you have two or three mediocres, and you're pulling in for those smaller towns. That is their money making revenue. For the year, where you everybody in the world comes in for that one weekend, except maybe it's a financial thing where they wanted to say 
let's keep it reasonably small so every year we can draw money instead of having one big year and three mediocre years. Yeah, well, listen, they are a business like everything else in boxing and sports. <laughs> it's commerce. And you're right. They, if you have, let's say you had like seven guys go in one year, uh, who's going in the year after? You exactly. do want to kind of spread it out. And sure. so if you could kind of delay the entrance of, let's say, Marquez, Mosley, and Bradley, that's a hell of a class. I, and, and at the end of the day, I've always said this, whether you're a first ballot guy or a guy that gets in through the Veterans Committee, you're a Hall of Famer. It's an unbelievable honor. Uh, I understand what it means to these guys. Uh, I still remember getting a phone call from Mark Two Sharp Johnson, one of the best little fighters I have ever seen. Um, this was a big deal to him because he didn't make great money. He was, a, was an African-American flyweight, so he, the business was stacked against him. But I thought he was dynamic. And he told me years ago, he goes, Steve, if I get in the Hall of Fame, I'm going to thank you because I know you've campaigned on my behalf. You've written a lot of stories. He didn't get in at first. But when he got in, as promised, I was a, a select few number of writers that he called. I think uh, Cliff Rold may have got the call or Lem Satterfield. And it was a big deal to him. It, it did not matter to him that it took him a few years. Uh, it, it, you work your whole life. There's a lot of champions, a lot of belt holders. There are very few guys in any realm of sports at the world-class level that could say, I'm in a Hall of Fame. But, you know, and I do think all those names you listed, eventually they will be in Canastota one day. Mark Tushar Johnson lives about 40 miles down the road from me. Wow. Now, is he still trying to be a referee out there in D.C.? Yeah, that that is my understanding. Uh, you'll probably see him coming soon on one of these uh, Oxen Hill, Maryland cards. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, I love Too Sharp. What a, what a dynamic little boxer puncher he was. Yes, for sure. Well, look, Steve, man, we really appreciate you coming on our show. I wanted to ask you real quick, kind of off topic, man. Yeah. Who's your, who's your favorite Miami Hurricane of all time? Who? Oh, Michael Irvin. Uh, I think he was the guy in the 80s that really got me excited about Miami as a kid growing up in Los Angeles, California, really Montebello. And um, the, the game that he really exploded, it was October of 1987. Uh, they went into Florida State with Deion Sanders, and it was a battle of two top five teams. And, and they had a running back by the name of Sammy Smith who just gashed Miami, had like 180 yards. They were dominating the game. They were up on Miami 19-3, and it looked like Miami was cooked. And then Steve Walsh and Michael Irvin came to life for one of the most dramatic games in college football history. Miami ended up winning it 26-25 on their way to a national title. And so Michael Irvin uh, in that era of Miami football with Jimmy Johnson's always been special. So Michael would be in my Mount Rushmore of favorite Miami Hurricanes alongside probably, uh, say, Ray Lewis is in there. Willis McGahee and Edron James and Steve Walsh. And I know that's five names, but it's my <laughs> national park, so just, I wanted to throw Walsh in there. It's your uh-huh. Rushmore. You can have as many people as you yeah, want. Yeah, I have Family. a whole national museum park. You know, I got monuments, <laughs> trophies, plaques. Got them all over the place, you know. I remember Sammy Smith, number 33 for Florida State. Wound up being a first-round bust for the Dolphins. Oh, yeah, he kept and, fumbling, uh, kept fumbling the but, ball in goal-line situations, and they killed him for it. You are a much yeah. You have much more detail for this than I do as far as exact dates, clearly. But I remember was 
Sammy Smith was their big back. It might have been the following year where Florida State was the preseason number one, and they opened the season with Miami. Yeah, they opened the season with Miami on ABC, and Miami just dusted them like 31 zip. Sammy Smith fumbled three times and yeah it was 31 nothing that game was actually on cbs it was on labor day weekend and what they did was cbs actually moved the game up the, the game was originally scheduled i believe for late september or october and both schools agreed to move the game up as like the game of the weekend because the national championship in 87 was literally decided by a two-point conversion that was knocked down by bubba mcdowell in tallahassee so it was a big deal. The Seminoles came out with this rap video. That was the era of the Super Bowl <laughs> shuffle where every good team would come out with a real bad hip-hop album. And they did one called the Seminole Chant. And, it's, and, and Miami just came out and just absolutely blitzed them 31 nothing. And to shut out a Bobby Bowden team then was almost impossible. And Bobby Bowden actually said after the game, Jimmy Johnson is a – defensive genius and it ended up being his last year he went 11 and 1 they got robbed at notre dame and literally jimmy johnson came very close to winning back-to-back-to-back national titles at the u wow see mount pika he's got that kind of detail that i have for ohio state football so that so how (laughs) how can you not listen to Uh, the detail like that he can even tell you the network that it was on (laughs) well i by the way guys and i'm going to date myself i have all those games on on vhs tapes by the way (laughs) oh Oh, wow. I have thousands of tapes in my attic of, of 80s and 90s football games that will never be transferred to DVD because the machines are just becoming such a pain to find. Yeah, and, it, it, and by the way, I still don't mind watching it, but what's great now is if you actually go on YouTube, a lot of those games are uploaded. So yep. it's great. Yeah. And they look sure. better than the games that I have taped, sadly. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Steve, well, Steve good... thanks so much for taking the time. We really do appreciate it. Oh, anytime, guys. Let's do this again. Had a lot of fun. All right, Steve. Good deal, man. There he is, everybody. Steve Kim, UCN, and next round. And the three knockdown rule, he has a show with Mario Lopez, everybody. I was supposed to push the applause. Let's do the applause. There we go. <laughs> oh, man. I, th- I, I thought I was the guy man. that was the technically challenged one. I know, I know. I, I, you know, I got a little flustered, you know, but um, that was awesome. Steve Kim, everybody, came and um, gave us some really good insight, not only on uh, Jorge Linares, but uh, some more information on Demetrius Andrade and the possibility of a, a, a Val, Oscar Valdez, uh, Carl Frampton fight going forward. So um, good stuff. Good stuff. What do you got, Sean? I don't really have anything for that. I, I would. I'm, I'm. I'm still pondering this Roy Jones, uh, uh, Andre Ward thing. Uh, it's interesting. I'm back and forth with that. I see both it, sides. I'm, it is an it, interesting it's because because if you look at because if you look at Roy's resume, like obviously he was dominant for so many years, right? But who's the best? The best name on his resume is probably James Tony in a in a very in a close fight. Um, you can say Hopkins, but that's Hopkins before he really became Hopkins. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, um, that, that first fight was down here at RFK Stadium, the old Redskins Stadium, has the pre, has the prelim, the co-feature for Riddick Bowe, Jesse Ferguson. Oh, gotcha. I did not know that. But um, yep. yeah, so, there you go. That's so what I'm here for. That, I mean, you look at Ward, 
Um, he obviously has a win against Brach. He won the Super Six. He has the – I'll give him credit for the second win against Kovalev. I uh, can't give him credit for the first one. I don't know. I don't know. But I think you kill, I think you kill the argument with if they were to fight at their peak, who would you favor to win? Who do you think would win? And I think Roy Jones wipes the floor with them, honestly. That's just a – Too fast, from a, too quick. Yeah, from a skill level. I don't think Andre would be able to do to him what he did to so many because I, the 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 combination of hook, grab, hold, I, I don't think he can do that against Roy. I don't think he catches Roy. Uh, I think Roy keeps him on the outside all night long and probably wins a lopsided decision. Very, yeah, for sure. And and on top, and and I think what the real kicker for me. Let's just say, let's let me play Nostradamus here, and and Manny Pacquiao decides next month that you know what I'm going to hang him up. I, I just don't want to fight anymore. So now you throw Manny Pacquiao in this in this group, and yes, while he did lose at the peak of his powers, his resume, the fighters that he fought, just destroys the fighters that all three Klitschko, Jones, and Ward fought. So I mean, how can we really? Hold that against Manny um, when he's fighting such better opposition. I mean, Manny did things in the fight game that I don't think those other fighters did. I, I actually, I, I can't say that about Klitschko because Klitschko's defense, you know, uh, reign uh, of defending the heavyweight title can't be uh, overlooked by any means. But, I mean, to me, Manny had a bigger impact on the fight game um, in his era than the other guys. Yeah, the thing with Klitschko, and the reason why, to me, I think he, he is, along with Floyd, the slam dunk, is you, you can argue that Klitschko's competition wasn't great during his reign, and you'd be right, but name the guy that he ducked. For sure. It, where, where, where some of these guys, when you look back, even with Roy, with Mikulszewski, who he would have played with. Oh, that yeah. you look at and you say, okay, the comp wasn't very good, but who's the guy that he missed in the division? Who's the glaring name that you look at and say, should have fought this guy and didn't? It's not there. No, I agree. I agree with you on that. I agree with you on that. Um, but, I, you know, it's, 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 fun, um, it's fun conversation, man. I think you can Hall make of Fame, I would rather talk Hall of Fame stuff than talk pound-for-pound pound stuff. Because Hall of Fame stuff, Hall of Fame stuff has a concrete. You know what you're dealing with. It's resume. What have you done, et cetera, et cetera. Where pound for pound, there's so many variables to it. One guy says, "My, how I decide is if we had a mythical tournament, who would win the tournament." And another guy says, "No, it's about resume. It's about who you've beat." And another guy says, "It's about no, it's a, it, it's it's about." How much physical talent do you have? Pound for pound is subjective. Hall of Fame has a certain amount of subjectiveness to it, but you can't change the record. You can't change who you beat and who you didn't. You can't change who you fought and who you ducked. Those things are concrete. So the Hall of Fame, to me, it's the same thing in baseball. Hall of Fame stuff is much, is much more entertaining to talk about than who's the best in the current game because that can't be to me there's so much nuance in that which is I, i'm a big fan of nuance as i told steve kim not enough people use it but in that particular case i would rather talk hall of fame stuff than talk pound for pound stuff oh for sure and you know um 
to the dismay of what uh, Steve Kim was saying about Tim Bradley. See, I can't see Tim Bradley being a Hall of Famer. Like, who's his his best win? I guess you could say is Marquez. That is best. I mean, you, you I can't count the first Pacquiao fight because he didn't beat Manny in that first fight. Now, you see, now I would think I, I would be the contrarian on that, and and I'm a guy that. And I, and I put it on Twitter, and I immediately, I almost immediately took it down because I felt bad. <laughs> right. I, I, he's just an awful announcer, just brutal. He he's seems like bad. the nicest guy in the world. Oh, for sure. <laughs> I, I, felt I love, terrible I love, I love about him it. on the show, honestly. I mean, he's a nice guy. Because Tim Bradley seems like the nicest guy. Well, you know what? There's a lot of people I'd like to have on the show. Sure. Whether I am a fan of theirs or not, I mean that's what makes good listening. I think whether you know wouldn't mm-hmm. you, wouldn't you like to have Andre Ward defend himself against me? I was I'd love it. That would that would be the price. Like we'd have to charge. I'd put pay per view prices on that one. <laughs> I mean, I'd say, look, Andre, I appreciate you coming on the show. You're clearly a Hall of Famer, but this is my criticism of your career. And then you can tell me that I'm full of crap. You know, and then you say, who the hell are you? Well, you know, I'm. A, That'd be, that would be great listening. But, I, but my back to Tim Bradley, who seems like the nicest guy in the world and is completely miscast as a color commentator because he's so laid back and so nice and so quiet. And you put him beside Teddy Atlas, the most bombastic <laughs> guy you could have. He, it, it's just like the who Dick thought Vitale of this of as being a good idea? <laughs> I, I, now – if what I would do as far as ESPN would go, I would do kind of like HBO and well, no, not HBO because they don't do it. Like Showtime does it, where they have Brian Custer sitting up on the stage and they have a guy or two in between fights offering his analysis of what you just saw. I, maybe he'd be fine by that, but Teddy Atlas just blows him away because you have this big, loud, bombastic guy and you have this other guy. Well, you know, he's, he needs to throw his jab more. <laughs> he just. It, it it just doesn't work. But I'm looking at Tim Bradley's record here. Let let's let's be let's give Tim some credit. Yeah, let's, uh, give him, let's give him the time of day for sure. Let, let's give it to him here. Okay, his, the first real name that you see on his record is uh, his uh, split decision win over Junior Witter. Then okay. uh, unanimous decisions over Edner Cherry. Uh, Edner Cherry, solid contender. Kendall Holt, solid contender at that weight. Um, Lamont Peterson is a very nice win. Uh, Luis Abregu at that time was a very nice win. Devin Alexander at that time was an undefeated guy. Knocked out Joel Casamayor, albeit a faded Casamayor. Very faded. I, I, if they uh, fought in their prime, I, I'd pick Casamayor to win that fight. Yeah, I don't even count the Pacquiao fight because everybody knows he really didn't win. The Provodnikov right. fight, which I which was a war, I scored that a draw. Marquez, I scored that fight a draw, but that's a win over a Hall of Famer. Uh, a, a faded Mar- – that's Marquez's last fight, is it not? No, it was Alvarado. Yeah, Alvarado was his last fight. Uh, Diego Chavez, Jesse Vargas, Brandon Rios, those are okay wins. Uh, to me, I think Tim Bradley is a Hall of Famer, but he's a Hall – he's a guy like – you know how we talk about in baseball where it took Burt Blylevin 15 times to get in? I think it's, it's, he's a guy that shouldn't be in a rush to get in, but when the day comes that you put him in, it's not a thing that you go, oh, I, I wouldn't have a pro- – I think Tim Bradley deserves to be in it, but I don't think he's a guy – I think he'll be a guy that, at least on, for me, 
that will be a guy that, okay, one year you don't have an outstanding crop coming in. Oh, you know what, Tim Bradley, it, it's his time. I'd be okay with that. Oh, and uh, Marquez's last fight was the Alvarado fight. Bradley was his next to last fight. I'm not, try- I'm not trying to kill – you know, Bradley or whatnot. It's okay. Um, it's what we do here. I'm, I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to think of fighters that, you know, that I could compare. Not, not necessarily that fight like Bradley, but had a similar type of career, like, like Fernando Vargas, for instance. I'm not sure. I don't think he's in the Boxing Hall of Fame. Um, I, 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 I was a huge Fernando Vargas fan, but to me, no, I would not vote for Fernando Vargas. So as why, much as why, I liked him. I mean, I think he's got just as good a wins as as Timothy Bradley, and I could be completely wrong. <sighs> Grant, I mean, well, obviously the two biggest fights of his career he lost. Um, I, is I don't know what would you consider his biggest win against Ike Corte? Uh, or um, um, it's right on the t- now. I'm gonna have to look it up. It's gonna bother me. <laughs> oh, Winky Wright. Oh, he did beat. Yeah, Winky I mean, Wright. and and that's a fight that a lot of people thought Winky Wright won. It was close for sure. I mean, you're. Lo- I'm looking at uh, at Fernando Vargas's record. Uh, Marquez was a good win. Uh, well, that's kind of a faded Raul Marquez. Uh, Yori Boy Compass Cortez a nice win. Winky Wright's a nice win. And then then it's Ross Thompson lost to Trinidad. Wilfredo Rivera, Jose Flores lost to Oscar, and then a three-fight win, a four-fight win streak against Fitz Vanderpool, Tony Marshall, Raymond Duval, Javier Caslejo. Before he lost to Mosley twice, and he lost to Mayorga. I, I I loved Fernando Vargas. I thought he was <laughs> great for the game. I was a big Fernando Vargas fan, but I'm a I'm a tough grader. If I'm grading that, not quite. Well, no, I don't. Here's the thing: I don't think he's a, a Hall of Famer, but I'm putting him on the same in the same class and the same level as a Tim Bradley. Like, I don't think Tim Bradley was ever close to best of his era, like anywhere near best of his era. So, how can we consider him a Hall of Famer? You know what I'm saying? Well, well, I think Tim Bradley at junior welterweight was probably the number one fighter in that division albeit not a division that we'll look back fondly at that time, where we look back and say that was an era of glory for the junior welterweight division. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at that time he was probably the best fighter in that division. But I, but I can see an argument. I can see an argument. The Marquez fight is going to go a long way because people will look at that and say, okay, now that's a victory of, over a Hall of Famer. And time tends to diminish these things. There will be people that look back at the Pacquiao fight 20 years from now and say, Tim Bradley beat Manny Pacquiao? Yeah, People forget true. sometimes. I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll take time, but people forget sometimes. How did Tim Bradley beat Manny Pacquiao? Damn, really? Yeah. And it does happen. I mean, Although we are in in the digital age, that stuff is a little more at your fingertips than it was even ten years ago. No, that for sure. At your, for sure. it's at your fingertips. You can see for yourself now. 
But if it was me, I think Tim Bradley – I would give Tim Bradley the vote depending on the year, depending on what he's up against. And as much as I love Fernando Vargas, I would probably say not. But, boy, I really you – know, I love Fernando <laughs> Vargas. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't a, I loved his machismo. I loved, you know, how tough he was, you know what I'm saying? But I was never a fan. Like like, you know what I'm saying? You you just gravitate towards certain fighters. I just never I always respected him. I was just never a fan. Him or David Reed and David Reed after got after he got beat by Trinidad just kind of fell off the earth. But you hear like, that, they Fernando? Come on the show. I love you, man. <laughs> For sure. Uh, sure. I'll, I'll give you one of those kiss up interviews because I I, I just love Fernando Vargas. It, it, no, it, cool. It's too bad that he lost. I, I honestly look back at the Trinidad fight for as great a fight as it was. And, it, and it's 12 rounds of a terrific fight. But it really did – it, it. you never saw the same guy after that. No, he was not the same guy. Trinidad changed his career for sure. Because that was the beginning of pay per view, where where guys were starting to, it was it was really the beginning of boxing beginning this turn that took us to the point that we are now, where you look at it and guys, oh, you know, let's speed things along, pay per view, pay per view, pay per view, and he kind of the the Trinidad fight happened about a year to eighteen months before it should have, because it really cost him, and I mean, you he know, never was the Marcus same guy was- after that. I want to say he was like 21 years old in that fight. I mean, yeah. He was a youngin, and re- I mean he had yeah, some he, fights under his belt, no, no doubt. But to put him in the ring, like it was, it was way too early for him to be in the ring uh, against a guy in Trinidad who was just really at the peak of his powers at that time. The only thing that I can think of is after he beat Ike Corte, there were probably people involved with him and his management team and his promoter and probably HBO because they had him that probably looked at, oh, my God, he just beat Ike Corte. It looked really good doing it. What are we going to do with this guy if not Trinidad? Yeah. And, and sometimes you sometimes you know, you get – Steve Kim would, could be able to tell you as well that you get boxed into a corner. It's like we've beat this guy that if we're not moving up – we're moving backwards, and if we're moving backwards, are people going to watch it? I kind of always got the feeling that Fernando Vargas, for all as skilled as he was and as tough as he was and as fun as he wanted to watch, that the Trinidad fight happened just before he really should have would have matured. If that fight would have been eighteen, if he would have got another one or two fights in against really against good strong competition. That fight might have been so much bigger, and it might have been better for his career. Well, but he made a lot of money. It, he should be okay. Yeah, if you look at it in retrospect, you have you have Fernando Vargas coming off of a big win over Ike Orte. And Ike Orte was coming off a controversial loss to Oscar De La Hoya, right? And I then you have like Oscar De La Hoya, who many believe kind of out – you know, outboxing school Felix Trinidad, even though it ended up being a, a, a or ended up going to Trinidad, um, which a lot of people thought it was a draw. You know, very controversial decision there. So, and then you also have Trinidad moving up in weight. So you have a lot of factors. Like if we're if we're looking in retrospect, a lot of factors that I'm sure the Vargas people believed or were very confident in his chances for that fight. You know, obviously 
styles make fights. So it really doesn't matter how you perform an event against a certain guy. But there were enough things, enough things happening in Vargas's favor to make that fight, and not to mention the money aspect, to where it, it makes sense. But, you know, revisionist history, after seeing him get dropped, how many, what, five times in that fight? And not, not just flash knockdowns. We're talking brutal knockdowns. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? That probably changed, you know, definitely changed the outlook of his entire career. A fight that never happened that I wish would have happened would have been a unification fight at 147, Ike Corte, Felix Trinidad. Yep. Yep. A fight that never happened that I think would have been a great action fight. And I'm going to be honest with you, this may be very unpopular with you. I might have given Ike Corte a hairline edge in that fight. I I think that. I, I think I can't, I, I yes, I, I think at, at 147, at 154, Trinidad was the better guy. I just I thought Ike Corte would have kept coming forward, would have kept Trinidad on his bicycle, and Felix was a guy that if you could keep him moving back and on the jab, was a guy that, as Oscar kind of proved wasn't the same fighter. I think if they would have fought and tried to unify at Welter at that time, that's a pick'em fight that that you would figure it's a pick'em fight that Ike would have been the underdog in. I might have laid some money down on Ike to win that. Ooh. You know, I put money on Ike to beat Oscar because I thought, you know, the one thing to always nullify Oscar was a great jab. And obviously Ike had, you know, Bazooka Corte had one of the best in the business. My only, my only reservation, you know, I'm a huge Trinidad fan. I know you were, that's why I knew it wouldn't be popular. <laughs> my only reservation to that is that Ike had a tendency, yeah, I don't know if Ike could take the punch. And, and Trinidad, won, he, as many faults as he had, he was a demoralizing puncher. Like, and if he was able to land the shots that Oscar landed on, on Corte and, and, and Vargas landed on Corte, I don't think that he would have been able to withstand that. Um, type of type of power could be wrong, but that's where my money would go on that. But I think it'd be a fantastic fight. Like I like Corte. Corte is a very underrated fighter. Um, he because some- after the Oscar fight, he pretty much went away. He went away for a while, and then he came back for the Vargas fight and lost a close decision at 154. And then you never saw him again. It's just. I, you know what? If we ever get Steve Kim on this show again, I, I need to bring him on and say, I don't want to say a word about old time guys or, or about the current thing. I want to ask you about these guys. What? Why did you know? Did what happened? Why did these things? Why did Ike Corte disappear? You know, stuff inside boxing stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm looking at Ike's record. Uh, right now, you know, after he fought Fernando Vargas, he he uh, fought three. Uh, uh, Verno Phillips was a borderline contender. Carlos Bajorquez was a borderline contender. I forgot about the. I forgot about Vernon Forrest and Winky Wright. He lost decisions to both of those guys. Oh, I didn't know he fought Forrest. That's interesting. Forrest is another fighter that. Well, but here's the just... thing. This is what I'm looking at. He fought Oscar in February of '99. Yep. Took a year off to fight Vargas and took five years off between Vargas and somebody named Clint McNeil. Wow. So he fell off the he fell off the planet. Yeah. He 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 was off for five years and then he fights 
three times in twenty in two thousand and five against Clint McNeil, uh, Verno Phillips, who was a you know Verno Phillips was a was a was a, a, a journeyman but a decent fighter. Ver- Vernon Austin Phillips confused. or Verno Phillips? No, no, Verno Phillips. Not cool. Okay, You're thinking right. of cool Vince Phillips. Now I'm thinking there about was the Verno Phillips, and then there was Vince Phillips, who's a chick. Yes. Yeah, that was Vince Phillips. Carlos Bajorquez was a journeyman. Then in August 5th, 2007, or 2006, Ike Corte loses a unanimous decision to Vernon Forrest in Madison Square Garden. Then he loses to Winky Wright in St. Petersburg in December of 2006, and he's done. Wow, you know what? I hear those keys tinkling. We're done, too. Man, I got to say. Incredible show. Thank you, Steve Kim, for, for coming on and, and, and blessing our listeners with, with some of your fight game knowledge, man. Hopefully we can do it again. Follow me on Twitter at RL Malpica. Make sure you follow Sean at Thoughts of RS. And every Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, we're here talking the fight game, man. I could talk for another two hours, honestly. I love talking the fight game, especially the old fight game. We got to do this more often, Sean, for sure. I agree. I agree. This is fun. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.